Welcome to a special episode of What I'm Obsessed With Now, with your friendly host and obsessive, Byron. Today we are lucky to be joined by Dr. Jeff Meldrum to discuss the Bigfoot. This is a really fascinating and interesting conversation. Dr. Meldrum is a professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University. Amongst the many academic articles Dr. Meldrum has written, he has also written a number of books, many on Sasquatch. From this, you can see why he was such a great person to talk to and to understand a bit more about Bigfoot and the scientific basis behind it. I think you'll find this interview incredibly informative. To start, let's hear about Dr. Meldrum's expertise and experiences. Well, my, my background, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. And so, um, although I must say I didn't discover Sasquatch until... Roger Patterson came to Spokane, Washington, when I was and showed his film. Uh, one of the first, I think, if not the first, uh, public uh, premiere of that uh, of that documentary that showcased the notorious sixty seconds of footage of uh, of a California Bigfoot. That um, that just fascinated me. I mean, I at that age was already interested in all types of things relating to prehistoric life, dinosaurs, uh, missing links, and so as well as mysterious topics. And uh, so that uh, that creature on the silver screen just seemed to embody the whole kit and caboodle. And so, um, you know, it's hard to, to judge which influenced the other more, I guess, as far as uh, uh, shaping the path my interests took uh, as it related to career aspirations and my interest in science, my interest in um, in primate uh, biology and, and evolutionary history and hominin, uh, paleoanthropology. Um, <clears throat> but as it turns out, I ended up pursuing a degree in anatomical sciences with an emphasis in physical anthropology. And uh, with a particular interest in locomotion, adaptations for moving about, posture and locomotion. And particularly, obviously, given our unique uh, or seemingly unique predilection for standing on two legs. And uh, so uh, whether it was in the forefront or whether it was lingering in the in the back wings, the, the notion of another bipedal primate was always kind of rattling around in my brain and um, even though as I uh, grew my you know perhaps my skepticism and and uh, uh, tended to grow with uh, the passage of time and the lack of resolution I mean I was always very uh, incisive I never I never I mean while, while the uh, fantastic side of it the sensational side of it it certainly had its appeal and had its uh, its effect. I was always thinking in terms of the footprints, and you know, I was influenced by Dr. Kranz's approach to the analysis of the foot and the hands and the dermal ridges and so forth. And so, uh, you know, I, I uh, read his book carefully, and and those the approach of Ivan Sanderson, um, the his his pragmatic approach that this wasn't some paranormal phenomenon this was a very natural element you know and, and and he even there's a there's a phrase that i highlighted that you know eventually this is going to be lifted from the from the paranormal or the mysterious rather he did, i don't think he used the term paranormal lifted from the mysterious and planted squarely in in anthropology where it belongs and uh so that was uh, you know that was always kind of my approach i my um my research placed me in a position, my understanding of the comparative anatomy of the extremities, especially the feet, legs, um, and my uh, my knowledge about uh, comparative um, uh, locomotor behavior, the fossil record of that, and the evolutionary theories about the evolutionary diversification of primate locomotion put me in, you know in, a, in an opportune place to 
uh, position to um, be uh, qualified to render more than just a passing opinion, you know, to, to, to offer some, some serious evaluation and conclusions drawn from that evaluation about the, the credibility of this remarkable evidence, the, the most prolific body of evidence, that being the footprints. With what you've seen, is there a natural progression, um, evolutionary progression between apes through Bigfoot and humans, or, or do no. you, does Bigfoot seem to split off at some point? Right. No, Bigfoot, I think, is, is its own lineage. I mean, this notion of missing links and transitional forms, um, I mean, it, it, has, it, has a, it has some utility in, in, in comparing and contrasting adaptations in the form and function of, of anatomies. Uh, but no, I don't see Bigfoot as transitional. Um, it's, it's a split off either, you know, and there, there are competing hypotheses and, and obviously there are, are very polemic, uh, opinions amongst the Bigfoot community on this topic. It, it really splits a room very fast, whether it's just an ape or whether it's a for the forest people, whether it's a human of some kind or, a, you know, a primitive or more advanced, depending on your persuasion. So, you know, the two hypotheses, I think are the most interesting are just literally straddling the boundary between uh, hominoid evolution, not non-hominin, that is, and and hominin. I mean, we, we're all hominoids. We're all members of the hominoidia. But we'll, let's, for the sake of the discussion, we'll limit hominoids to apes and their immediate ancestors and relatives and hominins to our immediate ancestors. And, and so they both are, are probably fairly close to that divergence whether bipedalism evolved in parallel uh in two different populations uh, which is a very realistic proposal been entertained for early hominins by many many um credible scholars or whether it um or whether it is a unique synapomorph unique derived trait that uh, unites it with the hominins in which case i think it'd have to be a very early offshoot, something like a paranthropus. So on the one side, you've got a gigantopithecus-like hominoid, a giant ape, uh, a, a branch of that radiation. And then on the other side of the fork, not too far removed, you have a very early offshoot of the hominin radiation, a robust form of, of australopithecine that attained gigantism during the Pleistocene like so many other um, uh, mammals that comprise the megafauna of, uh, of Asia and North America. I think that's that um, uh, an interesting uh, part of, I think, the myth and, and what potentially moves it from or, or brings it from being purely an animal to closer to us and people have that, you know, how close to humans is it? Is the fact it walks on two, two legs? Um, right. And my, my brief understanding is that that costs, right? There's a cost to going from being on four, on four limbs to walking upright. There's a cost. What benefit do you think it, it, it provides the Bigfoot and what can that tell us about uh, potentially um, how it evolved? Well, in measuring the cost, you have to place the adaptation in the context of from whence it's emerging. And so an ape that has a reconfigured shoulder apparatus that we do, I mean, we look different than a monkey. Monkey has a more, you know, dog-like and narrow uh, chest and shoulder blades on the sides that are essentially vertical uh, extensions of their forelimb. Whereas an ape, which spends a lot of time with its arms above, above its head and uh, reaching up, has flattened the chest and placed the shoulder blades on the back. Well, when that animal comes back to the ground and walks on all fours quadrupedally, it's not a very efficient uh, way to do it. And uh, chimps and gorillas have modified in such a way they've, res they've avoided the, the uh, problems they would have with their wrists if they were palmigrade by walking on the backs of their knuckles. And with their extraordinary disproportionate limb lengths that have been selected for vertical climbing of tree trunks, um, it makes that, uh, that posture also more practical. 
But, uh, but when you go plant or uh, quadruped, quadrupedally uh, with a shoulder like we have, it, um, it, it puts the shoulder blade and the sh uh, humerus, the uh, arm bone, in shear. They tend to, tend to drive past rather than being in compression when they're aligned vertically. So for, for a gorilla, it, uh, you know, it behooves an animal like a gorilla, let's say that, because gorillas still obviously walk quadrupedally, but they do it in a very modified way. They actually retract their weight back onto their hind limbs. So if you measure the proportion of weight on the fore versus the hind limbs, it's much higher on the hind limbs than on the forelimbs. In other quadrupeds, like a dog or like a bison, it's just the opposite. Much more it's on the forelimbs. Um, so uh, in any case, uh, if such an animal uh, were to come to the ground quadrupedally, they're placing their wrist and their elbow, but most importantly, their shoulder in, in a compromising posture. And so it would make more sense for an, and, and those uh, compromises would be amplified as the body mass increases. So in a giant ape with that kind of a shoulder apparatus, walking on four limbs is, is probably even more costly, more, um, uh, more uh, problematic. Uh, so, so there would be, you know, you've got a 50, 50 you could say, uh, with by ignoring everything else, just by a flip of a coin, you've got a 50-50 chance a big ape like that comes to the ground. They have no business being in the tree because if they fall, it's going to be a fatal fall. Uh, and so when they're on the ground, you either walk on all fours or you walk on, on uh, twos. And so what, what's the likelihood? Well, given that anatomy that I've just described to you, the likelihood that they would walk on all on two limbs is much higher in my mind than, than it would be for all four. So uh, that's why I say it's very possible that if the Gigantopithecus model bears sway, that, that the ancestor of Bigfoot um, evolved bipedalism uh, independently, convergently, under similar conditions um, as, uh, as the hominid. You know, then alternately, you've, you've got something like robust Australopithecine, uh, Paranthropus boisei that survived in East Africa until about 800,000 years ago. I mean, that's pretty recently. It was right alongside Homo erectus and probably even Homo heidelbergensis. Why couldn't it have migrated out in, in waves with some of these other uh, emigrations? And along the way, during the Pleistocene, have attained, as it, especially as it began to exploit habitats in more northerly latitudes, increased size has lots of advantages. Um, against predation, uh, as far as uh, food uh, diet, if you're if you're exploiting a more northerly habitat with less nutritious foods and uh, coarser diet, you need a larger body in order to have a more capacious gut and slow gut passage time and digest that uh, that stuff. So the increased size, I mean, that's why meg uh, Pleistocene megafauna got bigger. Because the prey items got bigger, and so the predators had to get bigger to tackle those items. Bigfoot was one of the uh, probably one of the prey items. Putting together honestly. your academic research and and your research on Bigfoot, um, I'm sure there's some academics who uh, question that. How do you how do you deal with them, and what's what's that conversation like? Because there's a you know there's the the idea that scientific research is about questions, and you shouldn't close anything off. I'm guessing right. a lot of people close off Bigfoot. Um, I've, I've seen it online. How do yeah. you deal with that, and how do you have those conversations? Well, they're they're varied. I mean, the reaction uh, from my academic peers literally spans the gambit from uh, from uh, you know commendable curiosity and interest, enthusiastic enthusiastic support to what I can only describe as uh, you know just this visceral abject rejection and uh you know i find that inexplicable in anyone who professes to be a scientist be a researcher but it happens i mean you get these remarkably closed-minded attitudes of it can't exist therefore it doesn't exist and it doesn't matter what evidence you think you have you know what what kind of a scientific or you know michael Shermer, who's quoted as saying in scientific american uh, the science starts once you have a body, 
well, that's ridiculous. You know, I had that flung in my face by a couple of physicists in our in our uh, call or our uh, university here. Uh, one wrote a column to a, a newspaper and took me to task over this. That and then and then quipped, "The science starts once you have a body." I wrote back and I said, "Well, that's interesting coming from a physicist." I said, "Show me an atom, show me a black hole, show me a string." You know, much of your paradigm. <laughs> rests upon phenomenon or objects that you've never seen, that you've seen the influence of those objects on the surrounding environment. You've seen the trace, the interaction, and so forth. And that's the kind of evidence I'm dealing with. The science starts when you have a question, as you said, when you formulate a hypothesis and you start to marshal evidence for and against that hypothesis. That's what science is about. You know, when you spend all your time doubting everything I think you kind of forget how you do science, how you do real science. So, yeah, and it kind of t- it takes the wonder out of science. I, I love science, and um, I love reading about it. And, and if you if you don't have any wonder in science, it kind of takes all the fun out of it and, and sure. looking into it. Um, it's talking so that, about that, that gives you just a little insight about how the conversation. <laughs> I'm just going to say I've developed a very thick skin, oh, but good. I also have a pretty good right hook that I've every <laughs> once in a while. <laughs> Uh, in, in terms of experience, um, in terms of sorry, evidence, um, as you were saying that you know the the standard of evidence they want is a is a body, um, but in terms of evidence, what what's the best evidence that you've seen um, for the existence of Bigfoot or a creature like yeah. that we haven't seen before? Well, quality of evidence in, I, I've discovered rests in large measure on the qualification of the observer of the evaluator. And so from, from my perspective, as one who is steeped in the analysis of footprints and uh, comparative functional morphology of the foot, the footprint evidence is by far the most compelling in my mind. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's more objective. It lends itself to repeated evaluation and, and you know, um, and rather, uh, uh, well, yeah, objective, uh, objective observation, whereas so many other experiences are oftentimes anecdotal and highly subjective personal experiences. Um, I think close behind that is the other physical evidence, namely the uh, hair samples that we have that defy identification. Unfortunately and frustratingly, they also defy the yielding of DNA by virtue of their, um, their uh, intrinsic structure. That is, they lack a cellular medulla, and that's a fairly consistent trait, which makes it very challenging uh, to get DNA. When DNA has been gotten from samples, um, often it's a very cursory analysis of that evidence, and you know, just a few thousand base pairs sometimes, and and a mitochondrial gene, rarely a nuclear gene, to uh, go along with that, and so. Um, Almost invariably, I mean, if it's not readily identifiable as some other form of wildlife, it, it turns out to be human. I mean, if, if it has primate characteristics, and it's assumed that it's either contamination through mishandling by the uh, observer, the collector, or um, that it's um, uh, that it is a misidentified human hair, and and that's possible. That's possible. We've had this. I mean, you know, humans sometimes do lack the cellular medulla. But that's the exception, not the rule. We have consistent samples over decades collected independently from disparate locations that all have this same morphology. They differ usually just in the in the proportions of the of the uh, uh, pigments that lend uh, color. Uh, so blending, yeah, blending from uh, you know the reported very pale, almost white up through buckskin and beige and reddish and dark brown and almost black. And it just is the proportion of you and melanin uh, that these hair samples have, but they all have the same width. I mean, there's no question they're primate. So it boils down to, are they human or are they non-human? And, uh, and I'm, I'm quite confident that, they're, that they represent a consistent uh, non-human source but doggone it, we still haven't got any DNA from them. And that, you know, as an anatomist, I'm comfortable with the anatomy. We should be able to come to a conclusion on the basis of the hair morphology. But, um, but that, 
it doesn't quite put it over the top for most people who want a definitive. They think that the DNA is the only definitive means of identification. So you were saying about the footprints and and um, that being uh, where your expertise really come in. What there are a lot of footprints. Um, some of them are, um, you know, people people can't don't know what they are, and then some of them have been proved to be false. The ones that are in that bucket of this seems a bit strange, we can't explain them. What does that actually say about the creature that created them in terms right. of how quickly they could move? Is this a creature that can can just walk at that kind of speed or could it be, you know, uh, running across a field? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the uh, the distinctions that we see, these, are, these uh, convincing footprints are not simply enlarged facsimiles of a human foot. There are considerable distinctions. For example, they lack a longitudinal arch. They are flat. They're much broader than a human, especially through the heel, um, and which one, one would expect given their massive size. Because, you know, as, as uh, your linear dimensions increase, your um, uh, volumetric proportions uh, triple, treble, you know. And so, um, the uh, there has you would expect there to be changes in the morphology, and so the broader heel is an important one. Um, obviously, the toes show no sign of uh, of uh, shoe wear; they, they're not confined or cramped. The little toes not turned on its side, and uh, there's less uh, disparity between the big toe and the lateral toe. So the toes are more a little bit more subequal. The pads are more expanded, and so forth. Um, they show a degree of midfoot flexibility that is characteristic of non-human primates and that, that also lack a longitudinal arch. So when the foot moves through the step cycle, rather than the entire foot acting as a lever with the fulcrum at the ball of the foot, the foot flexes or breaks across the mid-tarsus and uh, the heel comes up first. Sometimes that produces a very distinctive pressure ridge which has been kind of a signature that, uh, you know, researchers now kind of look for. Uh, it's, it's interesting to hear all the Bigfoot enthusiasts talking about mid-tarsal breaks when uh, 20 years ago, there was probably a half a dozen people who could give you a, a reasonable explanation for what that meant and, and its significance in, in human evolution. And now it's, uh, you know, just parlance, uh, vocabulary of Bigfoot enthusiasts. Um, <clears throat> But, I, but it's, it's very significant. I think it's very important uh, consideration. So your question, a Bigfoot, when it walks, it walks with a compliant gait. This broad, flat foot distributes weight over that surface area more efficiently than the concentrated focal points under the ball and, and, uh, and heel of an arched foot. Um, you know, the evidence suggests that they're capable of bursts of speed as are chimps and gorillas. I mean, they're remarkably uh, athletic and muscular. It's said that a chimpanzee has five times the strength of a human man. So if you imagine that Sasquatch retains that muscular physiology characteristic of non-human primates and hominins, perhaps early hominins before the human gracilization, then it's not only immensely strong, but I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's capable of, of stepping, leaping, of running uh, very fast. Now, whether it's a marathon runner, that's something that's uniquely human, I believe, uh, amongst all of the apes. Uh, we and, and that was part and parcel with our lightening of our skeleton and muscular system is we became, we also developed a much greater um, aerobic capacity for endurance running. And, uh, you know, to the point that a strategy of, of hunter-gatherers is what they call persistence hunting where they can keep up the pace for hour upon hour and literally run an, uh, an ungulate into the ground to where it collapses and uh, they can walk right up to it and just dispatch it without any further effort so i don't think a sasquatch i i, I doubt that a sasquatch can do that uh, but it's possible who knows i mean maybe with bipedalism there has been more selection for uh, running behaviors as well. I mean, they clearly, there is evidence, I shouldn't say they clearly, that's a 
presumptive, there is evidence to suggest that they have a very large home range, you know, perhaps on the order of a thousand square miles. And so, you know, uh, it may be that they cover a lot of territory on their nightly forays to forage for rather dispersed so, so basically, if I ever hear a Bigfoot coming after me, just keep running. So I should be able to outrun it. Yes. Because they sound very you, strong. You, I'm not going to be able to outbox it. <laughs> if you can outpace him in the first uh, 100 yards or so, <laughs> before that, good luck. <laughs> I think that's a really interesting um, uh, understanding of uh, how the Bigfoot would actually get around. Um, and uh, if uh, if I can um, have a guess as, a, as someone who do, is not an expert, but um, from what, what I read, they tend to be within forests and um, where there isn't a lot of open space. So if, you know, with uh, evolution, we've come from, you know, the flat plains of Africa, it makes sense to, to run straight, whereas they might not. So that foot dimensions kind of lends to believing that if I can get out of the trees, I'll be okay. But uh, amongst the trees, they'd probably be pretty nimble. There you go. And, and that, I'm glad you brought up that point too, because um, I think that's another important contrast and, and an adaptation of that mid-tarsal break uh, by, by keeping that, uh, that suppleness of the midfoot, it allows for the negotiation of very steep terrain, much easier than we do. And also their, their massive musculature. I mean, if we take uh, Patty at her face, the Patterson-Gimlin film, those massive thighs with huge quadriceps and 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 uh, hamstrings and massive gluteal muscles. The, that's a, a a mountain climbing machine. And in that, if that were like you said, if that were the race, um, we would lose hands down <laughs> because the power and strength of going up vertical inclines. And this is something that's that numerous. Uh, a number of witnesses have have commented on um, uh, seeing just the uh, the ability to traverse one one that I can speak on firsthand. We had a, a witness here locally who who may have seen one. Otherwise, it was the biggest guy in a snowmobile jumpsuit, home snowmobile uh, jumpsuit that, that you can imagine. But when it became aware that it was observed. And his dog started barking in that direction. It turned off the road. And at this time, there was about three feet of snow on the ground. And it went through the snow, through three feet drifts or snow pack. And it went up the mountainside and over the ridge. He said it would have taken him easily, you know, 45 minutes, an hour to crest that ditch in that snow. This thing did it in like five minutes. It just motored its way up over through that deep snow. And, uh, so he, that really impressed him, the power, and convinced him all the more that this was not a human. He said no living person could have, have demonstrated that kind of a stamina. So speaking of experiences, um, have, do you think you've um, had an experience or have there been situations where you've um, heard something or seen something that you, you can't explain um, with what right. we currently know of the, the, the native um, species where you are? Yes, I've had several uh, experiences. I've, I've found footprints, inexplicable, otherwise inexplicable footprints. I said they weren't inexplicable to me. I mean, I knew exactly. But uh, but I found footprints on probably a half dozen occasions in, in the wild, sometimes in extremely remote places. I've heard several vocalizations from high-pitched wailing screams to um, whistles to um, uh, what I... I imagine was tooth clacking you know there's a possibility it was a couple of rocks but the circumstances and the setting were such that it seemed like because they were responded to instantaneously and i don't think these things walk around carrying rocks to each other to communicate uh, they might i mean there's some anecdotal that suggests that might be but there's also anecdotal of them snapping their jaws clacking their these huge teeth together uh, as as some animals do when they're anxious or when they're communicating, I've uh, I may have had an, an an encounter where I caught a glimpse of of uh, one silhouetted in uh, through a night vision monocular. It was a difficult, uh, uh, very poor lighting conditions, and uh, uh, I mean little or no ambient light from the moon or stars, and um, um, and with the monocular, you lose that depth of field. 
so it's flattened and it makes it a little harder to interpret what you're seeing. But I mean, I tell you, it sure looked it, it if you took Patty, turned her around, had her walk the other direction, and had her jet black against the pale granite uh, gravel bed of a road that she walked across. Um, my view was slightly obscured by a berm. And uh, I mean, that's that's what I think I saw. But uh, but again, you know, I, I kind of blinked and I kept looking and and trying to see moving the monocular around, seeing if I could uh, recreate some some artifact. Uh, they did. Uh, Dr. Bindernagel was there at the scene and who I trust implicitly. And and uh, they located what they thought were uh, footprints, uh, you know, vague footprints, the impressions in the vegetation of the trail. And it was in the right place. From what I saw, they would have had no way of uh, second guessing where I had other than from my description, which was uh, was before sunup the next day. So. Yeah, I've had some experiences that, that keep keep me going, but but by far and away, it's the combined evidence of the footprints. It's this enigmatic hairs. It's the Patterson-Gimlin film that I'm absolutely convinced of. It's what you what you were explaining there sounds a lot like communication, and um, I think you know communication is often viewed as the hallmark of intelligence. Um, if you had to guess from your experiences, do you think that these are in terms of intelligence, do you think these are closer to us or closer to the, the apes? I mean, they're, they're smart right. in and of themselves. Um, where would you put them? Yeah. If we look at a, at a spectrum of hominins and we correlate brain size uh, with um, uh, material culture, material uh, or, or evidence, archaeological evidence of material culture, when does that show up? in in the fossil record well you know we've we've now got evidence of very primitive flake tools where um where australopithecine will knock off a little sharp flake to help cut uh meat off of bones um orangutans can figure out how to do that and cut through uh, a rope to open a, a tied shut box you know so there's that and then but it's not until we get to homo that we start seeing systematic um, cultures, that is repetitive utilization of resources in a very systematic way and distinctive toolkits that get more and more sophisticated. And even, even early homo, those are still pretty primitive. What they've often called chopper tools, in my mind, those are just the cores. They're still just knocking off sharp flakes, cut through the skin or cut off the, the meat off the bone. It's not till much later, till you get to Homo erectus, that you start getting these remarkable spear points, you know, where they make them bilaterally, perfectly bilaterally. Oh, it's amazing. So if we take Sasquatch and put them against that spectrum, where do they fall? There's no evidence of material culture. There's definitely no evidence of stone tool use. There's uh, just opportunistic brandishing of sticks or throwing of rocks and you pitching them underhand usually. Um, I don't put any stock in these uh, claims of tree structures or, uh, you know, um, things like that. And certainly not glyphs. I don't see any evidence of language um, beyond what you might extrapolate from the abilities of great apes to pick up on on uh, verbal and nonverbal communication skills. But, uh, but otherwise, their behaviors and anatomies really kind of fall in that eight versus or eight to early hominin that some have, have described as little more than bipedal chimps, you know, before the emergence of later hominins. I don't, I don't think there's evidence of a lot of, a lot of intelligence myself. I mean, beyond that scope. I mean, uh, I don't mean to say that they're just apes because I think that's a real disservice. That's a real mischaracterization of, of the primate uh, the great ape adaptation. They're extremely intelligent, extremely um, uh, emotive, and uh, and so forth. Um, but your, your your comment about communication, uh, you know, there are there are differences of type or degree versus differences of kind. 
I mean, even cells communicate with one another. But 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 you're right. But but where does sentience? Where does self-awareness and uh, the ability to empathize and so forth come into play? And even that is a pretty gray gradation. You know, they've used uh, mirror tests as a way to evaluate, but a lot of chimps and gorillas never recognize themselves even in a mirror. Uh, elephants do, you know, elephants do, dolphins do. Uh, so there's other animals that, that uh, sometimes uh, uh, demonstrate that level of I think it's also um, how do we, if we're measuring intelligence against a another creature based on our own intelligence you can miss a lot so i think in in what i've read about uh, the apes that don't recognize themselves in the mirror that they're less visually um that they communicate less visually and they're more um auditory so they would they'd be less likely to see themselves in the mirror but when you play their own sounds back to them you see their faces very very confused so i I think that's really interesting um We, we have a rabbit, a pet rabbit, and um, you often see her in the afternoon laying in front of the mirror and just staring at herself. I don't know if that says she's intelligent, but <laughs> she, she recognizes yeah. something that she likes. Yeah, um, yeah. Company, so, anything, yeah, company yeah. Of, her, of a conspecific, whether it's herself, does she realize it's herself? She actually thinks she's a else? dog. She thinks she's a chihuahua. Yeah. But that's a whole, that's a whole other issue. Yeah. <laughs> um, so talking about evidence and just going back to that, um, why do you think there's such a lack of um, concrete evidence um, talking about videos uh, besides the one that you've, you've already mentioned with Patty? So videos, more videos, pictures, and then the big one, like all the scientists are saying, where's, where's the body? So why don't we see bodies and bones and, and, and that sort of um, remnants? Well, I think the the common denominator to most of those uh, queries uh, revolves around number numbers. Um, I think that they are are much rarer than those people who um, who allow for the possibility of their existence acknowledge. Um, people have certain preconceptions or ideas about what's necessary to sustain a biological population. Or they have a misconception based on that's derived from over-reporting of spurious experiences that that likely have little or nothing to do with Sasquatch. Um, that that seems in their minds to tip the scale. You know, there must be they must be all over the place. You know, and I've had people actually say that to me. You know, oh, I I interacted with five of them. You know, well, I doubt it very. I doubt really that you interacted with one of them <laughs> based on your assertion. So, um, you know, I've uh, we, we could get into a discussion about how how I arrive at at an estimate of the population. It's drawing upon lots of factors like <clears throat> evidence of of uh, repeat appearance of, of individuals whose footprints are recognizable. Um, the fact that they're largely solitary. What does that mean about their possible social structure? Um, what, what, how many calories does an animal that size need? How much territory would they have to uh, move uh, um, through in order to forage efficiently and successfully, etc.? And I come up with a, a home range of about a thousand square miles, a social structure of a, a male that tends to defend or to patrol that, advertise his presence in that terrain and then that overlaps a couple of females maybe with a couple of offspring in tow so if you look at a map say you take a map of idaho and you look at all of the habitat and uh, and and the precipitation rainfall or, or precipitation rainfall and snowfall so um, there seems to be a good correlation between uh, annual precipitation of, of 18 plus inches per annum and uh, uh, that seems to encompass the bulk of what we think are credible sightings. Credible because of the credibility of the witness or the corroboration that they've provided for their, their experience. If you look at that map then and, and just roughly, how many thousand square mile plots can you fit in the state? And, you know, give or take, let's just for the sake of the 
straw man here, about a dozen. So each each plot, each of those dozen plots has one male and let's say three females. So there's four. And let's say, let's just for ease of, of math, let's say one offspring. So five. So 12 times five is 60. Well, say that's too conservative. You know, no way. Even if we double or triple, so uh, 120, 180, there's still only less than 200 Sasquatch in all of Idaho, which boasts more wilderness than the low, any other lower of the lower 48. Um, there's 35,000 black bear in Idaho estimate. So you, you know, when you when you just compare those two numbers, 35,000 plus two or, uh, versus 200. How you know that's about 200 black bear for every for every one Sasquatch out there, and uh, then you start to realize so how many how many bear skeletons have you know have outdoorsmen come upon in the wild? Precious few that weren't shot hit by a car. Oh yeah, very rarely. Dr. Krantz used to make it a practice to ask audiences uh, that he spoke to and uh, if they'd ever found a bear skull. And in all his years of asking, I, you know, he, I was not aware of him saying he ever had a single one. I don't ask it religiously. I bring it up when this conversation. Uh, and I've had only maybe two or three in my career who have found uh, bare remains. And so. Do you think as really we um, and well, here in Melbourne, Australia, we keep moving out and building building houses Um uh, I assume the same is happening um, in Idaho as well. So, do you think as we push out that that there's the potential to find um, bones and and a, a skull or or something like? Because sure. in my mind, again, being the amateur, uh, I always imagine that you walk through the woods and if something yeah. dies, there's a skull somewhere. You can go you can right. go grab a skull somewhere. Um, no. What's the reality of of a skull being found? Exactly. The reality is that it's it's fairly rare uh, for two reasons. One is that the the, the predators and scavengers uh, make short work of, of the remains. I mean, including the bones, uh, rodents, porcupines, rabbits chew up bone. Even even deer will chew up bone for the calcium. And so um, there's that. And then what isn't consumed readily that gets left out exposed to the elements um, in wet coniferous forests of the, particularly of the Northwest, but even in the woodlands of the Eastern uh, states where there may be Sasquatch, where there are bear populations, um, the soils are very acidic and, and acid dissolves calcium phosphate, you know, in the bones, uh, uh, hydroxyapatite and calcium phosphate and so forth that makes up the bony matrix very readily. Uh, in the Pacific Northwest, you have the added uh, element of the volcanic soils. So where there is a lot of basaltic um, uh, erosion, then that adds even more to, to uh, the city. The likely place uh, where someone eventually is going to stumble on a piece of a cranium or something, it will be in a cave, which is where Gigantithicus remains. And it's a bit protected. Exactly. Well, and it's an alkaline environment, see? A limestone cave, I should be specific. Not, not a lava tube like in basalt or, or, or uh, you know, igneous rock, but, but limestone cave where the phosphates that are the um, uh, calcium that reinforces the uh, bony matrix and, and fossilization will occur. Um, but so far, you know, no one has... Has found that, but you know, again, look at the bear example. If you went, if people who explore caves, who open up, who discover sealed caves, and find, uh, you know, in, in of all those hundreds of thousands of bears that have come and gone, and many of those, you know, utilizing these caves, there's only one or two or three bear skeletons that have been discovered in these caves, preserved in these caves. Well, so. I mean, there may be more than that, but, but but my point is just simply the fraction of the huge number of bears that have been observed. And then when you compare the much smaller total number of Sasquatch, uh, then what what's the likelihood that that same fraction have survived to be discovered um, by by us? 
So I, I, I know uh, uh, one of my colleagues um, who's up in uh, South Dakota specializes in the excavation of limestone caves in southeastern Alaska. Seems like the ideal place to search. And uh, I, I brought this up with him when I was writing my book, this question of taphonomy of, of, the, of the fate of corpses of animals that have perished uh, was discussed. And I said, um, you know, what do you think about this question? I said, what are the, you think it, do you, do you find it dissuasive that bones have not been found? And he says, oh, no, not at all. Not on its own. And there might be other reasons to doubt but not on that basis, because he said, you know, we just find uh, a very f small cross-section of the animals that come and go in, in the environment in these caves. And they either den in the caves or they're brought in caves by scavengers, like the Gigantopithecus that are brought into the caves by porcupines. If, if there weren't porcupines, we would have no fossils of Gigantopithecus, period. Zero. So there would, would have been this giant ape that lived in East Asia for, you know, up to a million years, and we would have no fossil record of it, except that porcupines have carried a couple of jaws and a few isolated teeth in, into the, well, those are the ones that have been discovered so far. But, <clears throat> but that's the only reason why. So, um, you know, he said, in all our digging, we've only found a handful of bare bones. In, uh, in, and it, he's, he's completely excavated down to the bedrock I think it's five or six or seven caves in southeastern Alaska. So I said, uh, well, if you ever find a primate bone, you'll be sure to call me. He said, I, <laughs> the first he'd call. <laughs> I'm waiting. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. I've read a couple of people who have explained that, um, that kind of exchange of how the bones break down, but that's kind of putting it into context because it's really hard to visualize, particularly someone who grew up loving dinosaurs. You know, you right. hear about, well, there's... A, there's a dinosaur discovered here and a dis dinosaur discovered there. They're millions of years old. How do yeah. you not find something that died, you know, a hundred years ago, let's say. Right. Um, right. So that's really interesting. So the evidence comes down to footprints, um, sightings, and the credibility of those sightings. Uh, something that I've always wondered, how do you tell a genuine and a non-genuine person? Because the non-genuine person is more of a risk than the genuine person is of a... Uh, b benefit because the non-genuine person ruins the credibility greater than the genuine person increases the credibility. What are some things that you've found um, when you're speaking to people? Well, uh, one that I kind of alluded to was the, 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 uh, the ability to uh, almost on demand to have interaction, to uh, routinely have, have contact or encounters with Sasquatch, um, uh, people who claim habituation, uh, where they're coming around their house repeatedly, uh, every situation of the, of that, that I have investigated myself has not borne up under scrutiny. So, so it's those extraordinary claims, you know, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably isn't true. And, um, the credible reports almost invariably are, purely uh, serendipitous. They're, they're happenstance. They're chance encounters. It was the last thing on the person's mind, you know, when they were out hiking or fishing or whatever, driving down the country road and, or the Forest Service road or whatever. And so, um, and so, you know, again, my personal experience, I go out there with the intent and, uh, and have been skunked <laughs> for much of my efforts out there, quite honestly. And, um, you know, again, I get, it kind of boils down to the rarity again, but uh, but not to get sidetracked. So, so your question, the the sincerity. One one thing that uh, is always a red flag to me is when the witness starts to transpose their thinking into the mind of the Sasquatch. In other words, they know this. The Sasquatch likes this. The Sasquatch uh, um, will do this. You know, they they uh, they assert with with uh, certitude too much knowledge that they have no way of knowing you know they don't know what's in sasquatch's brain they don't know what it likes and dislikes they're they're extrapolating even if it's a credible report uh based on a credible experience they their tendency is to extrapolate from an observation 
things which are are, are just not justified. Um, so that's mm -hmm. often often a, a red flag that perhaps the the fundamental claim is in question because they, you know, they're the type that will see what they want to see or what they expect to see. Yeah. Uh, in my research um, at looking at sightings and, and people's interactions, one thing that um, stands out for the cases where people claim or people who have researched and claim that this is credible is that the person is generally terrified, um, is yeah. either terrified that they saw something so as much as I would love to be able to walk out in the forest, and we've got our own Bigfoot down here in Australia, we've got the Yowie, as much as I would love to um, go out in the, into the bush one day and, and see a Yowie, I think if you came upon something that was eight foot tall and, um, you know, broad and muscular and looks like, you you know, hopefully I can outrun it, you'd be terrified. Or at least you'd, you'd, you'd have to pause for a minute to think, what on earth's going on? So I think that's probably a tell. Do you do you find that with um with people that you've spoken to that there's a there's that sense of maybe not um, fearfulness, but that sense of just shock. I guess would be the best way to put sure. it. Oh yeah, I think that is a, a very realistic one. I mean, when I as you were describing that, I was re just reflecting on you know one in particular a very impressive um, experience that was related to me firsthand. Mm. I had the opportunity to hear them. Related, and you could see, as you described, you could see the physical changes as they relived that experience. And and yeah. this was a face to face, eight and a half foot tall, standing wow. on the other side of her tent in broad daylight. And so it uh, it was a life changing experience for her, and it really did turn, you know, much of of her uh, activities and her plans and what wow. she what what her priorities in life were. Um, as a result of that, so yeah, I think that's a very astute observation that um, that uh, the individual's reaction certainly that that can vary depending yeah. on the degree of experience woods and in the outdoors and with other forms of wildlife. But uh, yeah, this was always you know always a question to me when you'd these you'd have these uh, seasoned outdoorsmen and avid hunters who would just be reduced to kind of warm butter by their experience <laughs> and would no longer, you know, they would admit to me, they don't go back in the woods wow. to that yep. area to hunt or they, and they never go in the woods without, without uh, a sidearm to for secure. And so, you know, something really influenced something happened. and affected a yeah. change in their attitude about uh, the outdoors. So it's hard, yeah, it's hard to dismiss that. Absolutely. I've only ever met a couple of people that were over seven foot. And if you come around a corner and you bump into someone that is over seven foot tall, even though they're just a person, it's quite a uh, it's quite a shock just because of the size of how tall they are. Yeah. It, it's not expected. I think it's an ex, you know when you're surprised, there's always there's always that reaction. So if that person was seven foot tall, hairy, and another creature, I, I, I'd be terrified. I think um, uh, something maybe a little less a uh, little less serious. Do you have any uh, Bigfoot movies that you like to watch? My um, the so in in thinking about what subjects I was going to do on this podcast, um, uh, one of my favorite movies um, that I that I ever watched as a kid and I watched it multiple times was Harry and the Hendersons. I absolutely sure. loved that. That was like that was my dream that we would that we'd go out bush one day, we'd find one, and he'd be my best mate, and we'd hang out. There you <laughs> go. <laughs> do you do you have any movies or, or things that you like to watch? Doesn't need to be a kids movie, um, but something that you like to watch when you when you want to um, think about Bigfoot. Well, it's tough because the uh, you know so many of them are uh, they they pander to the the horror slasher genre that uh, you know Bigfoot pulling arms out of their sockets and so forth. Um, uh, the ones that that come to mind uh, and. Uh, just recently, I, I watched again. Uh, 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 I can't think of the name of it. It was one that was uh, produced by Ron Olson. It was after Roger had passed, and it was uh, produced in order to hopefully to generate some revenue flow for some expedition. But it portrayed a scientific expedition to go way back into the mountains. And it was purely fictional. And, and it was very cartoonish because they had all the stereotypical characters. There was the intrepid. 
um, uh, a guide uh, and the Indian tracker in garb. And there was the, the stoic scientist, you know, and the uh, kooky cook and, and, and the skeptical reporter. I mean, they had it just right down all the stereotypes, but it was quite uh, entertaining. Lots of wildlife shots and and uh, enduring music, you know, from that era of the 70s, late 70s, I think it probably was. Um, and then there was, OK. Oh, of course, uh, The Legend of Boggy Creek was a classic. I still enjoy just the soundtrack. See, when I was a kid, <laughs> we would uh, uh, wait for these to come to the drive-in theater because then we would take a, a tape recorder, our little uh, cassette tape recorder, and I would record the soundtrack of the movie. And then I would, I would fall asleep at night listening to They Always Follow the Creeks, you know, they Always Follow the Creeks. <laughs> that eerie music and that howling cry of the Falk monster. Um, so those were some of my, I, I related, again, I haven't watched these m movies, the, the modern ones. There was the uh, Creature from the Black Lake, about two college students who go off in their panel van back into the back bayou country to look for, so I, that was always a kind of the fantasy, you know, because we were going to eventually someday go on our own expedition, and so hopefully it wouldn't end quite like that, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> That was another one that I had tape recorded to listen to over and over again. So it was, it was funny, the things Brilliant. you do when you're young. But, um, yeah. Uh, well, me and my friends, we had giant stormwater drains um, near where I lived. Um, oh. lucky, luckily, we did this in summer when there was no no rain. But um, right. we, we were convinced that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles lived down there. And when, oh. um, we never found them. <laughs> we never found them. Um, yeah. just, just the last question for me. Um, What's the one question that you would like to be asked in these interviews that you aren't and you think would, would um, give some good information to people listening? Yeah, well, it's hard to pin it down like that to one question. I, I think the, the important take-home message, though, whichever, whatever question would prompt it, is, um, you know, for me, th this is not just something I do on, on a lark. It's not... Uh, a avocational activity for me. It's it's central and part and parcel to my research as a as an academic. And I think that when people recognize that there is a context, a um, paleontological, an anthropological, a biogeographical, an ecological context within which this question makes sense. For people who today say it's impossible, you know, they can't exist, therefore they don't, they've got, they, their, their premise is just, is baseless anymore. They cannot, uh, except out of just sheer ignorance, defend that position. It is absolutely possible. It makes sense. It doesn't just have to drop out of the, the ether, you know, the, the uh, paranormal ether. Um, the question then, remains is it probable what's the likelihood that such a creature does exist based on the suggestive evidence that we have so far but the lack of conclusive evidence and um you know uh how how um with how much confidence should we proceed i mean i i'm quite convinced that on the basis of the evidence that we're absolutely justified scientifically to entertain the notion and proceed and pursue it as a scientific, serious scientific question. Thank you for joining me on this special interview episode. I hope you enjoyed this interview and took something out of it. I took from this interview the seriousness with which this research is being done. Dr. Maldrum demonstrates this and it opens up greater conversations about the unknown. Did I leave this conversation believing in Bigfoot? No, I'm not convinced but it isn't such a strange concept anymore, only believed by backwoodsmen. I keep an open mind and I will follow Dr. Meldrum's research with hope. A big thank you to Dr. Meldrum for his time and insights. From here in Oz to you in Idaho, thank you for the chat. To catch all the future episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcasting app, leave a rating for the show to grow our obsessive community, follow the socials and join your fellow obsessives. Links in the show notes. 
Written, produced, and edited by Byron Gatt for Pinterest Media. Sound designed by Lily and Fred. They designed the barking. I edit it out. Check out the full credits in the show notes and how to get in touch. Theme music by Mixit.co. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>